John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 059.ZC0603, certificate number 36454. The Appaloosa. Appaloosa. Is that a song? No. I was imitating the Pixies song, Andalusia. I am un horse, Appaloosa. <laughs> um, I was thinking of the Victoria Williams song about Appaloosas, which is an unrelated town in Louisiana. Completely unrelated. I would think so. Yeah, because it's spelled uh, it's spelled and pronounced differently. Appaloosa is actually a, a Northwest name or a corruption of a Northwest name, as we'll see in a minute. And by Northwest, I mean here. In the northwestern United States. It was a native word? The Pacific Northwest. Before we messed with it? Um, well, it's a word that you already know. It comes from the Palouse. <gasps> the Palouse River that flows into the Snake River that gives its name to um, to eastern Washington. And one time Mario and Luigi saw the Palouse River and they said, Appaloosa! Ah, the first Italian ever to see the Palouse River renamed it the Appaloosa. The horse actually was, um, yeah, it, the, the name came from people going, oh, yeah, it's a Palouse horse. It's a Palouse. Is that true? Yeah, it's a Palouse horse. Appaloose. Appaloose. Appaloosa horse. I don't know how you would misunderstand. I mean. Eh, it's Western people, you know. They're, they're shouting things. They're, they're, they're both on horseback. What kind of horse is that? Appaloosa. They're leaving off the indefinite article, apparently. Who cares? Yeah, it's funny because we say Palouse all the time to mean the farm country around Western or around Western Washington University, which is actually in Eastern Washington. No, Western Washington University is in Western. Washington. Oh, you're right. It's Eastern Washington University is also in Eastern, in Eastern Washington. Washington. But we're talking about Washington State University, ah. which is in the Palouse. This is our second straight entry talking about Washington State University. Our favorite. Oh, yeah. Go, right. go, go Cougars. <laughs> uh, we talked about horses before, too, didn't we? Have we talked mm, about... What's our horsiest entry? Um, hmm. you, we, I asked you, you at one point if you, you have did ridden Rody, horses. Rodyville and Tony the Pony. Right. Was that the show? That was a long time ago. It was. But no, we, I've, I think we've talked about it more recently than that. Uh, your experience with horses growing up. Did you have... Uh, just to just to recap, if that episode 
doesn't exist or if you have not heard it yet. Uh-huh. Did you have any horse times? Very occasional horse rides, and it would mostly just be, you know, getting set on a pony as a kid. Even yeah. as an adult, it's more like, all right, people, let's, let's... Does your dad still set you on ponies sometimes? No, now I set people on ponies. Right. I set my dad on ponies, you know? It's, yeah. it's just kind of the circle of life. Sure. It's, you know, just kind of vacation, uh, you know, 45 minutes trotting on a trail with a horse is all I've ever done. Yeah, me too. You- and when I say trotting, I probably mean walking. I would love to have spent time on horses. I I think it would have, it would have been a very different life, a great life to be around horses. How do you think you'd be different today if you had been around more than zero horses? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of acquiring skills. Mm. I got cool nunchuck skills. You know, I got all na- the skills. Are you Napoleon Dynamite? <laughs> but uh, and I, you know, and I, I I think I've got a pretty good set of skills. But I feel like horse skills would just be fun to have horse skills. Would, it'd be fun to know. I met a kid last year who was a rodeo cowboy. He came and built a fence behind my house. And, uh, in talking to him, I was like, what do you do when you're not building fences? He was like, Oh, I'm a rodeo cowboy. He was young. Wow. And so I, of course, wanted to celebrity know, fence guy. Yeah. I wanted to know all about being a rodeo cowboy. And he was telling me all about his horse and how if you're roping, uh, things. Dogies? If you're roping dogies, your horse has to know how to do it. 80% of, of getting little doggies along is your horse is getting them along. A horse is a horse, of the, course. The, ho- the, of course. the horse has to be working in concert with the, the rider yeah. holding the rope. Yeah. And the, ho- the horse, you know, it's not just that the horse has to know what you mean. It's the horse has to know how to do the job. And, and you're a much better horse ro- or a calf roper if you have a, have a good horse. Although you can do it on a borrowed horse. You just hope it's a good borrowed horse. Can you do it like on a Vespa? You, well, Vespa rodeos are different things. You're, you're chasing a, you're, what is a Vespa rodeo? You're chasing someone chasing in, a, Sophia Loren in, a, in a peasant dress. <laughs> I was going to say you're chasing somebody in a very narrowly cut suit yeah. who is, uh, you know, who's you're chasing, skanking. You're chasing Jason Bourne. <laughs> He's trying to skank his way out of the circle and you're, you, you have polo mallets. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a blood sport. We need to have a Vespa rodeo. I Vespa think. rodeos. Um, but you know, horses, they just, I don't know, they figure so prominently in all of civilization across the globe, right? Is there a culture that doesn't have horses? I guess probably Aboriginal. Aboriginal Australia? Australians, maybe people in Micronesia, but horses are throughout uh, Asia. They were were in East Asia anciently, I assume? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know know this, it's true, yeah, the steppes of Mongolia. Yeah, the ponies are responsible for all the... You don't imagine Mongolian. them wandering around Southeast Asia much. That's what water buffalo are for. Yeah, right. But 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 in, they must have been known in China. They were uh, yeah. they were prominently part of the the whole operation. The America prior to Columbian introduction, right? Had no horses, and in fact, the spread of horses, although that's what llamas were for. Uh, right, but there weren't any llamas in say Montana. Colorado. Yeah, right. Montana uh, then is I mean it's got a lot of llamas today. But yeah. then I mean a lot. Not a lot. Do you think it has more llamas or emus? Did any of those fad 90s farms stick around? I think llamas more than emus. Because what can you really get out of an emu? You try to milk an emu and you're going to be disappointed. It's not it's going to hurt. But uh, and also if I think 
Well, you know, people definitely, we talked about people riding ostriches oh, on yeah. this show. And monkeys. Yeah. Are you, monkeys riding ostriches, not humans riding monkeys. Right. And uh, we, when we say don't ride ostriches, that's one of the things we say on this show. If you haven't listened to that one yet, you, we should probably say it in every, in every episode. Yeah. There should be a lengthy warning of all the, the, all the Surgeon General's advisories we have come up with. Yeah, at the end of the show, we'll, we'll make sure to remind you. We should do all the things. Don't go to ice capades. Don't ride an ostrich. Don't summon uh, the ancient goddess Babylon. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was watching the- Don't smoke um, cigarettes. Don't smoke. Don't smoke. I was watching the, uh, speaking of llamas, I was watching, there's a new uh, Netflix show with um, no less than- Barack Obama as the producer and narrator. It's like a nature show. Wow. You know, he's got that Netflix deal. Yeah. So he's doing a show about the world's national parks and how important it is to have wildlife preserves or otherwise, you know. He's got a network deal and he's just taken the easiest path. It is the easiest way out. (laughs) They show him walking along the beach at Hanauma Bay from apparently on a day when they've kept out tourists. And I'm sure Everybody who's trying to get in that day is super annoyed because they're, they're just, right off camera, right looking down. They're up going, on the highway shaking oh, their fists. Come on, Obama. And, and he's just walking along the highway saying, I grew up on a beach very much like this one. And uh, <laughs> so it's basically just one of those BBC Planet Earth documentaries, except all the narration is Obama because, you know, they also put him in the studio for a couple of days and he knocked off all the narration. Sure. But he has to narrate all these very undignified things like like dogs humping or yeah, like what? some some rhino is failing to mount a human or a human Whoa. some rhino is failing to mount a female yeah and you know poor obama has to narrate the whole thing like uh the sexually frustrated male <laughs> approaches the you know because you know how on bbc it would be like david attenborough would be yeah. like over 50 percent of the world's uh insect species live in these lush forests so it's so funny when it's obama being like over 50% of the world's insect species live in these lush forests. And so you like your Obama impression is terrible. How did I not know it was there? But it's, it's just, so there's the lengthy thing of like guanacos trying to have sex and like Obama's, you know, talking us through it. And I'm like, you were the leader of the free world, man. You don't have to narrate guanaco sex for netflix yeah but it, he got this deal it's worth millions of dollars yeah. it's easier than coming up with like a robocop storyline he literally had to spend you know four days on this thing they, right they flew him to kenya for one day to stand in front of kilimanjaro and then they flew him to <laughs> indonesia to stand in the jungle it's and exactly the the tv show i want to do it's very much the tv show i do actually like I get to fly to LA once a month and do ten Jeopardies, <laughs> Alaska then, Airlines uh, and, and, privileged flyer, and then I'm good. If Alaska doesn't cancel my flight, yeah. Um, so yeah, I have an Obama-like deal, and I I can't fault it. I, you got to get that. You got to get that paper. Yeah. Obama. Yeah. I I I had a great idea for a television show where I where I went around the United States and. Uh, Went to cities in decline, you know, American Rust Belt cities or cities, you know, small cities that had that once had illustrious times and have fallen on hard times and had become kind of gutted. And now I was lo- I was going to be and you were going to challenge them to robot fights. No, I was going to I was going to tell the story of the town, and then I was going to find the people in the town that were doing cool, interesting stuff that might save the town and and maybe it was going to have an, a resurgence. And I went all the way. I had a, a whole team of people. We we pitched this show and uh, the people that were in television eventually said to me, 
um, the thing about this show is that it's clearly in the family of shows made by people, proposed by people who don't actually watch television. So <laughs> what you think is good television isn't what people who watch television want from television. You actually are suggesting something actually interesting. Yeah, I was like, well, what do you mean? This would be great television. And they're like, great television is when you take housewives and make them fight. Television where you go to old Rust Belt towns and try and find people that have artisanal bakeries is something Except I don't know else. if I buy that. Because there is a whole... There's a whole uh, school of successful TV shows, whether it's Bourdain yeah. or Fieri, who are doing that kind of, let's go to this little town and see what... But there's always a sport to it. Bourdain and Fieri yeah. are like eating live lizards, and then there are the pickers that are trying to find valuable garbage. Right. There's n none of them are you have just... no hook. Yeah, there's no Ken Burns style of like, look at the... I mean, maybe what I should have done is go to Rust Belt cities, talk about them, and then try and find the hottest chicks there. No. <laughs> and have like a beauty pageant at each Rust Belt town. Like what you, I think what you need is to announce that you're going you're gonna to give or the show is going to give a, a big giant check to, um, to, the, you know, to the, all these different – it, it would be like Shark Tank but in a dying Rust Belt town, which is a weird look. Actually, the pitch included <clears throat> that – it was going to be like a, we were going to have a mystery van full of, uh, like there was going to be a little cast sort of, uh, sort of, um, in the style of Mythbusters. We we're going to have a, a, a vintage GMC RV with a little radar dish on top. There was going to be like a scientist and a computer person and like a race car driver. And then I was going to drive a vintage, uh, rattle can primer painted Corvette. And so the Corvette would get to the town and then, you know, my little crew of adventure uh, scientists would follow in the RV and that's how we would learn about. It was a great idea. You a just didn't want to hang out with those people. No, I wanted to be in the Corvette because, oh, because a, a, a friend's father was selling a Corvette and I was like, that's <laughs> the that's Inspiration the strikes. <laughs> how can I get um, Discovery Channel to pay for this Corvette? It was such a good idea. Maybe somebody's listening and they're going to they're gonna green light this just based on that five minutes alone. Let's go back. Let's go back. Set the Wayback Machine to 2012 when I was pitching this show. The Corvette of uh, the rattle can painted Corvette of ancient times, of course, was the horse. Oh, what a segue. What a pro. <laughs> See, that's the kind of thing America was robbed of when the Food Network did not want this show. The rattle can Corvette. Is that your Obama? I don't have a good Obama. <laughs> uh, during uh, during presidential seasons, I really I turn off any interview or speech because I just can't stand the the cadence of a of political speeches. That's so why I that's why I can't do Trump. I just never want to listen to it. You couldn't stand it. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to listen to that speech. I mean, I you know I can't even really do Kennedy. Well, and you have a good Kennedy. You just have to watch Simpsons. Oh right, you just do Mayor Quimby. <laughs> It's funny to think of the considering the 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 massive role that horses played in what the European experience of Native Americans and Native American culture was. Um, it's kind of a, astonishing when you learn that. Yeah, there were horses. Horses came with Cortez, but they were mostly confined to Mexico until the. Uh, the mid 1700s, 
Like, that, that was when the Plains people got horses? They they came, you know, they came through New Mexico, but but in the in the Spanish colonial period, horses and horse riding were confined to the Spanish. They weren't they didn't distribute horses. They weren't a thing that um well, they were super valuable. They were super valuable and they were also like they'd been in Europe and in in Asia and the rest of the world. I mean, they were the they were the conveyance of the the socially elevated classes. If you wouldn't just give John Roderick a rattle can painted Corvette, you're not going to give the Plains tribes a random horse. Right. Right. So through most of the, the Spanish colonial period, they the horses were not, you know, roaming the plains and they they weren't they weren't used by um Aboriginal people in in South America either. And it was only when the the Spanish colonies of the southern United States, you know, in New Mexico and um what well, you know, California. Missions in California. When those missions started to fall apart or get uh or get raided by Indian tribes, did did those horses escape from the 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 missions and start to be more widely distributed? What about those wild populations in the West? Are those also those also were not descendants of conquistador horses? Oh, eventually they are. You know the mustangs that roam the West. Yeah, they're. But, what, but when did those populations start? Like when were the when were their first you know herds of of wild horses running all over the Great Basin? You know the 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 mustangs, which which ultimately in the 19th century were, or 18th century had become this massive population of wild free ranging horses. Invasive species, by the way. <laughs> That's right. They're beautiful. So you don't give them a lot of crap, but you know, there but were, if, if they were zebra mussels, we'd hate them. What are they now? There's 2 million of them or there, there were, I, I think at their peak, there, there were millions. Yeah. It, the population had gotten a lot smaller. Yeah. They got turned into the, dog food for a long time. Century. But like the Spanish had actually had laws against native Americans Riding horses, um, and it was—I assume—to keep the enemy, uh, well, for all these, weakened and less independent, right? For all these reasons, but but the Spanish also didn't really use corrals, so huh. uh, tough to keep ahead of, or you know, tough tough to to keep a, an accurate count of your horses. And I think it was it was pretty obvious um the the value of horses and and so anyway the the encounter between tribes and missions eventually resulted not only in the capture of horses and their utilization by plains indians but also horses escaping uh you know you burn the mission you get some of the horses some of the other ones get off uh but it wasn't really i mean the plains indians and the dispersal of horses throughout the Americas, you know, a lot of it, um, a lot of a lot of the tribes didn't in, didn't get horses until the mid until the mid eighteenth century, and the horses that we're describing today, the Appaloosa, um, uh, it was a, a horse initially refined by the Nez Perce people. Uh, the Nez Perce, who are who were the sort of dominant tribe in northern and central Idaho, didn't get the first, uh, didn't have first contact with horses until the 1750s, and they acquired them through the Shoshone Indians, 
who were in southern Idaho, Nevada, so forth, and they were, you know, they were big sort of horse collectors from the horses that were in the southern states, or, you know, the southwest states. It's weird to imagine someone that's never seen a horse. Right. Would it be like, you know, because we have all those European accounts of the first time they ever saw a giraffe, lion, gorilla, whatever. I wonder, I wonder what you would have thought of if you were a Nez Perce Indian in the 18th century and you see a horse. Do you immediately see it as, as a game-changing technology? Like, think of all the buffalo we could. Well, there are some accounts of that experience or that encounter because there was a group of Nez Perce who immediately understood the horse and adopted it. You know, that, that part of the Palouse is perfect horse country. Mm. And those tribes were protected from, they weren't like plains tribes that were constantly in conflict with each other. Um, they were kind of protected by a ring of mountains. They were, um, they had these wonderful sort of Alpine valleys and safe from raids. Right. And so a group of them became horse people right away, horse smiths. Right. And they, unlike a lot of, uh, native Americans who were utilizing horses, they became, adept at selective breeding. You know, I think the, the majority of horses initially that were, uh, sort of ranging free and captured by tribes, they were bred indiscriminately. Um, they were often used for food. If you were capturing wild horses, you'd pretty much have to reinvent everything, the saddle shoeing, like maybe the Nez Perce didn't didn't have saddles for a few decades. You know, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Right. And I think as soon as you met someone else, on a horse yeah. coming through the rye. Oh, right, reins, yeah. reins. And you were a like, great idea. what a wonderful idea. The, you know, the, obviously the stirrup, then the invention of the stirrup played a huge role in the, the migratory tribes of the European steppes. Um, we wouldn't be here today without the stirrup. Yep. Thank you, stirrup. And also plow. Also guns and germs. Um, but the Nez Perce were, were uh, they were breeding f- for specific traits, right? They wanted, uh, they wanted kind of tall, slim, um, sexy rangy horses. horses. <laughs> they wanted sexy horses, right? Um, and so they bred for what, what is that traits. for? Endurance? Is that what you're getting out of that, basically? Well, and grace, uh, speed, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Maneuverability. Are they using them to hunt? I assume. Using them to hunt, using them, uh, and and eventually for trade. Yeah. But there was a whole segment of the Nez Perce uh, tribe, tribal culture that was against horses. It was like a new technology that was taking them away from their, their what they thought of as traditional Nez Perce, Nez Perce values. values, which were kind of, uh, of like a farming and... You know, they weren't nomadic. They weren't mm-hmm. chasing the buffalo. They had this wonderful territory that they were cultivating. And so there were two there were two sides, like the the conservatives and these crazy young guys who were who were breeding these awesome horses. Um and so they lived, you know, because they were on the other side of the mountains from the whole plains encounter, they lived a kind of life that uh that had it was had a certain idyllic quality, even like all the the European stereotypes of native culture were actually true in a lot of ways of the, of the Nez Perce in a, in a, in the sense that, you know, those stereotypes were originally based on the East Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. East coast, uh, tribes that were living 
all, all the muscles you can eat. Exactly, right? Um, but these were, uh, the Nez Perce were, were even into the mid-19th century, still kind of uh, preserving this, this um, what would you say, this culture in isolation, right? Because Idaho, Washington, Oregon, it wasn't really until the 1830s that there was really much interest. If in you've that only part of seen country. Southern Idaho, you're not going to believe in Idaho as a <laughs> Edenic paradise. But trust us, it doesn't. It, get, it gets quite nice when you get up toward the Canadian border. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it as you drive from Salt Lake to uh, to Boise. You don't really see the beauty spots. Yeah. But like the Nez Perce were were uh, were encountered by Lewis and Clark, and. And Meriwether Lewis commented on how awesome their horses were. Um, you know, he had he sort of waxed uh, effusive about about their their beautiful breeds. This is sort of funny because you know by the time they make first contact with notable Americans, um, it seems like the horses are now an integral part of their culture. Yeah, but actually, it's a controversial and recently adopted thing. Yeah, there are still people, when Lewis and Clark came through, there were still people, uh, a whole segment of the population in Northern Idaho that were like, the horse? Wait a minute, you know. Like, what's the analog in our time? It can't be something as universal as cell phones or the internet. It really has to be like... Social media. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Social media. Yeah, because you meet people all the time. They're like, I'm not even on Facebook. We don't even have a TV. Um, we don't even have a horse. We don't even have a horse. We wouldn't have a horse in our home. No. Uh, but by this point in time, right, the, there's a lot of trade uh, between tribes. And then as as white settlers come in, there's there's trade in every kind of commodity. And these Nez Perce horses were, uh, were like a valuable trade commodity such that they became a pretty wealthy tribe even – by mid nineteenth century standards, right? They were not. Other tribes can't duplicate their skill at horse breeding, and therefore they've got the best product. Yeah, and these are the best horses. Where where during that time, you know, a regular horse might sell for twenty bucks. These Nez Perce horses were maybe a factor of ten more expensive, or more. Um, you Merce- know, they're they're a Mercedes, or yeah, a there are records of them selling for five hundred bucks or. Or more. So, would they sell to to like Europeans? Yeah. Well, not at first. So, you know, the history of horse breeding in Europe, of course, is as extensive as uh, and and extensively documented, dating back well even to Roman times. And and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of pictures of horses in prehistoric cave art. The Chinese mm-hmm. have lots of pictures of uh, paintings and drawings of their preferred horses. And what you see a lot is horses with spotted coats. And that's like a, yeah, that's like a, a trope on a cave wall. It's like, right. here's how you know it's a horse. It's got those famous horse spots. Horse spots. Like almost like today you would do on a leopard or a, you know, stripes on a zebra. And we and, don't necessarily today think of horses as a spotted animal. No, and there is some um there is some speculation that actually those spotted horses on prehistoric or on cave walls the spots actually represent that the horses mm. are in a dream state. Oh. That spots mean dreams. 
And so the horses aren't necessarily represented as spotted horses so much as they are dream horses. But in China, there are, you know, plenty of paintings of spotted horses, particularly as a, as a mount for nobility. And spotted horses throughout history, I mean, they're recorded in Roman chronicles. The spotted ones were very popular or, or, or were considered somewhat a, a, an elevated form of the horse. They're a bit of a rarity and therefore it's a, it's a hot commodity for the, for the wealthy. And that then was, was adopted piecemeal throughout Europe, uh, through the, you know, through the middle ages, Austria and Hungary became horse breeding areas. Obviously Spain was, there was a lot of, through the Habsburg monarchy, there was a lot of trade of horses between Spain and Austro-Hungary. You know, the Hungarians came as a invasive, invasive species. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many Hungarians in my backyard. You know, they were the last of the, of the European peoples to arrive. The Magyars. And, uh, and, you know, brought horses and horsemanship. From steppes to the east. But the Austrians really became a, uh, like a culture of horse, specialty horse breeding. There was a time a month ago where I did a lot of research on the Lippenzahner horses. Uh, yeah, I was in Vienna once, and you can still go see the Lippenzahner's parade. And the Lippenzahner parade and, and their specialty kind of uh, horsemanship you know, they actually call it the Spanish riding school because they yeah. imported those horses from Spain and, and bred them. You know, those, uh, there, there are all these traits that, uh, that Lippin's honors have to, uh, traits that define the breed, right? White coats and black skin. It's a plot point in the movie Crimson Tide. Is it? <laughs> Let me just bring the show to a screeching halt by pointing out that Quentin Tarantino did a pass on the Crimson Tide script and he's the reason why there's an extended metaphor where Denzel Washington, an African American actor, yes. wants you to know that Lipizzaner stallions are actually black, whereas Gene Hackman, as kind of a pugnacious white character, wants you to know that they are majestic white horses. Oh. So it's a metaphor. Yes, their... they have black skin and white. So hair. If, if you're ever in a troubled racial situation on a submarine, maybe <laughs> stay away from mentioning the Lipizzaners. If you were to open a store, John, what would you sell? Oh, I've thought about this a lot. You know, vintage sweaters, um, cheap guitars, you know, like old guitars, but cheap ones. Start making soap? No, I'm not like a, I'm not some artisanal shop guy. I think it would all be found. Just stuff you're trying to empty out of your house. Yeah, recycled garbage. There's that store in, you know, the 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 little seafaring store in Paul's Bow yeah. that sells like old stuff from old fishing uh, bobs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, just wrecked sh ship stuff. I love that store. You just want to sell old diving helmets. I do. I want to find stuff and resell it. When you begin your old diving helmet store, let me recommend to you Shopify. Well, now how is Shopify going to help me? It's uh, it gives entrepreneurs the resources that like a big store would have so you could compete with them as a little entrepreneur. Oh, this is helpful because I worry about this. You worry like, about big diving helmet choking well, out your business. It's just like there are so many things that you need to have a cool online business and I wouldn't know where to start. Shopify does it all. It helps you reach customers online using social media, helps synchronize sales you've done on different venues and platforms. Exactly. It gives you reporting of your profit margins and your conversion rates, and it helps you accept all major payment methods. 
it integrates all the behind-the-scenes stuff that has to happen for you to start selling diving helmets. See, this would be the stuff that was challenging for me, right? All the, like, I would get overwhelmed by trying to do all this myself. Let Shopify do it for you. It's hmm. more than a store. It grows with you. And I've got an exciting deal that I want to offer you right now, John. Well, well what is it, Ken? If you go to shopify.com right. slash Omnibus. Now that's easy to do. Slash Omnibus, all lowercase. You're saying Shopify.com slash Omnibus and Omnibus is all lowercase. The letter O, it's yeah. lowercase. Oh, I see. So don't capitalize O, even though we normally would. The letter M, equally lowercase. So don't do lowercase O and then capital M, which would be weird. Neither shalt thou capitalize <laughs> the N, the I, or the bus. Uh-huh. If you do that, you will get a free 14-day trial, and that'll have full access to the entire suite of features Shopify offers. Two weeks. Two weeks. So you're saying I could grow my business with Shopify today by going to shopify.com slash all lowercase omnibus, but don't Type in all lowercase. Just type in the word omnibus, but do not hit the caps lock or shift key Right. while you do so. Shopify powers over 2 million businesses from first sale to full scale. First sale to full scale. That's Shopify. All the way from first sale to full scale. The full spectrum of things that rhyme with whale. Shopify.com slash omnibus right now. Shopify.com slash omnibus. And the Lippenzahner school kind of plays a role in this, uh, in the sense that they were they were refining their breed, um, and and were kind of a, a core that that area of Austria and what would what would now be Slovenia. You know, they were populating the horse breeds throughout Europe, and spotted horses became. Again, a symbol of nobility, a very fashionable kind of horse in the 15th and 16th century. At most, uh, most popularly as the preferred mount of the Sun King, Louis the Fourteenth. Oh, he wanted a spotted horse. He loved spotted horses. And is, of course, is there anything inherently better about a spotted horse, or is it just that that's that's a, a rarity, like a like a like a albino? Uh, uh, dolphin. You know, the, the number of omnibus episodes we could do on different horse breeds uh, it is probably second only to the number of omnibuses we could do on dog breeds. And have we done a show on any breed of dog? We've done individual dogs, but I don't think we have done a show on a breed. Uh, the reason I'm doing a show on Appaloosa is that this is a show suggested by a Patreon contributor by the name of... Yes, by the name of Peter. And Peter is a resident of Idaho and grew up, and he, so he wrote us a, a, a nice letter saying, as a Patreon subscriber. More Idaho content, yeah, please. I'm entitled to choose a show, and I would like to recommend some shows about Idaho. And you hate potatoes. I do not like potatoes, Sam, I am, but I do love the state of Idaho, the great state of Idaho in all its many complexities. There are really four Idahos. That's not that many complexities. Four, when you think about it. Four, but each one of those Idahos is fairly complex. The, mm, maybe. What, what, how are there dividing lines for the four Idahos? Can you look at a map? I think of Idaho as divided north to south. Right, you have your very northern Idaho, then you have the your panhandle. mid northern Idaho, which is sort of where the panhandle widens out and it's very foresty. 
And then you have the lower middle Idaho, which is like the population center of Idaho. You've got your Boise and your and your Sun Valley, and then you've got your Idaho Springs and Idaho Idaho Falls. Falls. Idaho does not spring; it falls. And then you have, um, oh, and then you have Twin Falls, Idaho. Right, that's the uh, that's over there. And then you have the Idaho that is really Utah and Nevada. Which is, uh, and that that includes some of that eastern Idaho, Malad City, Idaho. Like, east, like that when you know taking uh, fifteen up toward Idaho Falls, that really is kind of a very Utahy part of Idaho, even it though is. you're moving toward Wyoming. It is. It's part of the great um, forty acres and a mule of Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> forty wives and a mule, we called it. Um, but four yeah, wives and forty mules. But you're right. That uh, I don't know if I would have gone north south. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right because I'm gonna put I'm with you. I'm gonna put all of Eastern Idaho kind of into that swath yeah. that goes down to the Utah border, Yellowstone, Idaho, and then down to Utah, Idaho. So anyway, uh, the four Idaho's aside, let's go back to um, to European spotted horses. the The spottedness is a kind of thing. You know, there there are a lot of stuff in horses. A lot of a lot of the different breeds of horses are bred for their appearance, and then you you start to specialize. You start to breed them more for their abilities and their uh, uh, their attributes. But you know, a pinto horse is not like a pinto horse isn't a breed, isn't a genetic breed. It's a color breed. And that's true of, you know, a certain, I mean, there are. Does that mean a bunch of kinds of horses could be Pintos mm-hmm. if they happen to have that coloration? Mm-hmm. It's a coloration. Um, obviously, thoroughbred horses, Mustang horses, uh, draft horses. I mean, they're bred also for their strength and ability. But when you talk about the spotted horses of the Sun King, um, they are the, their spottedness is not a separate breed. It's a style. It's a it's a color style, and uh, it's a look. It's a look. That's right. It's like, a it's like a horse, vibe. Horses can be goths. Mm-hmm. Horses can be jocks. Horses can be grunge. One of the horses that Cortez brought with him was described as as a, a goth. As a no, not as a goth. Although he may have had goth uh, horses, because obviously there are a lot of goths in Mexico now. But no, one yeah, of them. Yeah, all those Morrissey fans. Mm-hmm, that's right. Every time, I mean, it's the only place Morrissey can play anymore. <laughs> but uh, there was a there was a spotted horse among those that initial run of horses. The the Nez Perce originally were not specializing in spotted horses. It was a you know they were breeding mostly solid colored horses. Spotted horses were a small percentage of those. Although maybe there's some, um, if you're actually hunting on them, maybe there is some camouflage value in a pied horse. Yeah. Does it, doesn't it look sun dappled? It doesn't look like foliage. I mean, you're, you're I kind guess of you're like, not going to blend into the. You're you're retconning uh, World War One battleship camouflage <laughs> to uh, 18th century horses. But what happened was during the you know, the mid 17th century, uh, Louis Quatorz made spotted horses. I mean, he famously, I think it's pretty famous. He's the longest running monarch in history. 
80 years or so. Yeah. He ruled so long that he was replaced by his own great-grandson, great grandson. I think. Um, so he loved these kind of uh, rangy and thin, or you know, not thin, but tall, uh, narrow across the withers spotted horses, and they became fashionable throughout Europe. But when he died in 1715, all of a sudden, spotted horses were no longer fashionable. <laughs> the vibe shift. There was a glut of spotted horses, and they were... They were all chewed up into make insulation? No, they were shipped en masse to the United States. Oh. Like, oh, these horses, these spotted horses aren't really the vibe anymore. We're going in a more, you know, in a more, in a buff horse direction. And so spotted horses became, uh, became a feature in the American West. It's the equivalent of selling, of sending t-shirts with an incorrect Super Bowl winner to, uh, to the developing <laughs> That's world. right. Yeah. You walk around Romania and you're like, yeah, go Jets. Go Buffalo Bills. So the Nez Perce up there in Northern Idaho, um, they kind of withstood the, the tragedy of European colonization until the mid part of the 19th century. In 1855, they made a treaty with the U.S. government that more or less that more or less preserved their ancestral territory. Um, was this treaty ever honored? No, it was not even these ten story, years later. These stories always have the same ending. Uh, you know, they had they had this tremendous uh, uh, territory, and their horse. Culture was thriving. They had begun to, um, they had begun to see that spotted horses were kind of a, a, a unique feature, an identifying feature in their horse breeding. Like putting it on the license plates. But guess what was discovered? Oh, gold was discovered in their territory. I, I didn't know if it was going to be. It could have been silver or copper. I, was, I had a few guesses. It was gold, although silver and copper followed swiftly behind. And there was a lot of uh, white settlement that that rushed in. Lewiston, Idaho, founded, named after Lewis, across the river from Clarkston, Washington. Oh, yeah. Named after Clark. They're in the wrong order. They are, except- You have to, you have to read right to left. It's a, it's a Hebrew naming convention. Lewiston is a much bigger town than Clarkston. Yeah, take that. Clark. So there you go. Uh, that, that was a gold rush town. And you had all the white settlers rushing into Nez Perce turf, and of, and predictably, then during the Civil War, there was an amended treaty that unilaterally amended uh, that uh, took ninety percent of the Nez Perce land away, and said, "Oh, what we meant when we gave you all of your your ancestral land was ten percent of your ancestral land." A lot of uh, a lot of the members of the Nez Perce tribe did not sign on to the treaty, and their chief at the time was Chief Joseph, who um, who did not believe in direct conflict with the U.S. Army. He felt like that was unwinnable. But um, in 1877, there was a, a skirmish between some settlers and some Nez Perce, and it precipitated the Nez Perce War, which 
as the army came to to fight the tribe, the a, a big portion of the horse side of the Nez Perce took it on the lamb. Um, Eight hundred people got there, got on their horses, and basically evaded the U.S. Army in hot pursuit for over three months. They traveled. 1,400 miles around the West. They went to the Crow Nation and said, can we side with you? And the Crows turned them away. And they, you know, they went over to Montana. They went up to, to Canada, back down with the army hot on their heels. But their knowledge of the region and their skill of horsemanship kept them one step ahead of the cavalry at all times. That's right. And they left Idaho in a rush. I've done that. And um, they left a bunch of horses behind, but also the sedentary Nez Perce stayed behind. Um, so this was just the, you know, this was the, where's chief Joseph governing from? Is he with the, he's with the, he's, he's on the road. Eventually they are. That's when he gave his famous quote. I will fight a lot all the time. <laughs> that was his, his original quote was, <laughs> I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to have to do this. But now I'm sure going to fight a bunch. That's right. You, you forced my hand. Um, but they, they, you know, in October of that year, they paused in Montana and, uh, a cavalry officer, Cavalry? You nailed it. Thank you. Uh, Colonel Nelson Miles surprised them, but they fought and fought for five days, like running battle, but eventually were defeated. Uh, That's when Chief Joseph said, I will fight no more forever. The army promised them that they could, if they surrendered, that they could keep their horses and make their way back to Idaho. Of course, when they surrendered the army, did not honor that promise and took over 1000 horses from them wow and dispersed them sold the ones they could you know gave them away to settlers and farmers um they shot quite a few of them this um, is just to impoverish the Nez Perce is that the yeah, point yeah basically uh the idea the idea of the the sort of Western encounter with Native American tribes was the only way that we're going to make this work is that you settle on reservations, learn to farm. Uh, we're going to give you- This is the new way. Not super good farmland. This is the new math. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but you're going to learn to farm anyway. We're going to farm the worst land in the West. Because you can't keep being nomadic uh, or- and even the Nez Perce weren't nomadic, but you can't keep occupying this land in the way that yeah, you Yeah, in their case, did. you can't have land that happened to have mineral deposits. That's right. In general, we want to start fencing off land for our cattle ranches, and that's and, incompatible with... And big farms, but fences being the key element. And also, like, here's Lewiston, and Lewiston is is uh, selling wheat and, and putting boats on the river, and it's just not... You can't just keep living here the way you've been done. Um. Gentrifying. Idaho's gentrifying. But there were, there were, uh, Appaloosas still, and they were not known as Appaloosas at this point. They were Nez Perce horses. Um, but But, but they, they looked like our modern Appaloosas with the coloring. Well, they were, what is that? The coloring on the rear? So what defines the breed is, uh, a few things. One of them is this kind of, um, spottedness and the spottedness, the mottled color, uh, is actually both on the skin and in the hair. And often the hair will be 
a co- there will be spots of hair that are different than the spots on the skin. It creates this sort of uh, translucent, three-dimensional modeling. Appaloosas typically have modeling on their uh, muzzle, around their eyes, and then in their private parts. I don't know if a horse can have private parts because their parts are just they're all... not super private. Famously yeah. flopping around. Yeah, and in they're, many cases. they're sort of toward the toward the rear, so they don't keep them private. They're they're really they're sticking out. A horse can't cover their private parts. They should be words. called the public parts. Yeah, a horse's horse. public parts. The, that typically is modeled. Oh, I had no idea. They have... Um, Spotted dick. Yes, they do. They have stripy hooves. So their mm. hooves have stripes headed from from ankle to ground. So they're like horizontal stripes? No, they're vertical stripes. Oh, weird. Headed, headed down to the ground. Pinstriped horses. Um, they have... Uh, this is something interesting about their eyes. Most horses, you can see the whites of their eyes when they like roll their eyes or when they get really kind of frantic. Um, yeah, but typically no. Typically no. You just see the you just see the dark color of their iris mm-hmm. because the solera, which is the area around the iris, is the same color as the as the iris. Oh, interesting. Uh, but in Appaloosas, the solera is white. And in, in, in a lot of mammals, the solera is the same color as the iris. It's unusual. Humans are unusual. And I guess I've heard it's an evolutionary adaptation so that we can recognize each other's, you know, gestures and direction. We're looking at expression at a distance. Right. Right. And it's a, it's kind of, yeah, it's characteristic. So the Appaloosa might be more advanced, smarter horse of tomorrow. So they have, they have visible white solera in in their eyes. It's one of the defining characteristics of the breed. Appaloosa, the horse, you can tell what it's looking at. What are you looking at, Appaloosa? You don't have to guess. You don't have to guess. Uh, And, uh, and they, you know, they typically stand uh, in horse terminology, 14 to 16 hands. So five to five and a half feet tall. Is that a medium tall horse? It's a medium tall horse. Pretty solid horse height. I mean, you know, I don't, like I say, neither of us are really horse people. I'm sure there are people listening who know a lot about horses who are probably, I don't know if they are disagreeing, but they're, they're smir- they're snorfing at how little you and I know about them. I want to hear from all those people. Even if you're just like, you were a horse girl as a kid with a bunch of Misty of Chincoteague books and you've never actually owned a horse. I want all your corrections. Yeah. Make sure you write in and say, no, that's not true. Pintos are actually... A Ford product. Um, it's the kind of horse where the rear hindquarters just catches on fire sometimes. Well, so the Nez Perce now are confined to a reservation. And the U.S. Army kind of forced, I mean, everything the U.S. Army did to the Nez Perce qualifies as being forced on them. But they said, but they Look, weren't into any of it. You need to breed your fast, live uh tall, rangy horses with these draft horses because you're going to need to make horses plow fields because you're going to become farmers, not not freewheeling oh, Franklins. Right. Their horses are not consistent with plow pulling. Right. And gradually the, the Appaloosa becomes a sort of dispersed and forgotten horse. Um, just as... So many wonderful things about, so many wonderful things in the world. And about native culture in particular. Lost, lost, lost. Uh, And it wasn't until 
the 1930s, when a professor at the University of Idaho by the name of Francis Haynes wrote an article for Western Horseman magazine, which was at the time a very popular magazine. There were only four magazines. A circulation of 20 million for (laughs) Western Horseman magazine. There was the Saturday Evening Post. uh, There was Time. There was Western Horseman. And then there was Cat Fancy. When is this? The 20s? In the 1930s. 30s. There was time. And this was this article, because he lived in Lewiston, Idaho. He was a professor, and he had, a, uh, he had exposure to this remnant population of distinctively spotted horses. Like that, n- not wild? You would just sometimes see, one on, see some on farms or ranches? Farms and ranches, there was still a remnant population of them on the Nez Perce Reservation. Hmm. And he identified it as a, as a specific kind of historical breed of American horse and, and sort of uh, like extolled its virtues. And this magazine article was really exciting to horse fanciers in the depression. New horse just dropped. <laughs> That's really what happened. Um, there was a, a flush of interest in the Appaloosa and the following year, a, um, a, a horse club, the Appaloosa horse club was founded and Appaloosas now were like the, the passion of horse breeders how do we reestablish this breed? And the extant Appaloosas were kind of found and collected and bred with uh, Arabian horses that were, you know, that had been the fashion prior, like W.K. Kellogg, who's come up on the show before as uh, somebody interested in your bowel movements. Anti-masturbation and serial hobbyist. That's right. Uh, he he had a, a, a breed of Arabians that were bred with these these um Appaloosas that could be that could be found and and categorized or cataloged and the Appaloosa was reintroduced the horse club determined what its um characteristics were and a new line of Appaloosa horse was produced this seems very early for what is today a very mainstream cultural phenomenon of bringing back these heritage breeds of livestock, right? Like big focus in all kinds of agricultural movements today and probably just hobbyists of let's get the tomatoes and the turkeys and the cattle that our forefathers had. Yeah. And it was a component of, I think a 1930s and forties kind of recognition like, well, we've destroyed native American culture. Boy, wasn't it something like, wouldn't that be cool? I mean, the 30s and 40s are a real peak for romanticizing the West. Yeah. Right? And we saw it in... Uh, a peak for Western movies and Pulp Fictions and... And actually, we may have talked about horses and your and my experience of, of them in the um, in the Ledger Art episode. Oh, right. Ledger Art. Um, there's, there was a lot of... This was an era where, um, you know, people in the Southwest were collecting Navajo blankets and people in the Northwest were buying sweaters from the Salish tribes. And the Chinook jargon was 
was being adopted by people in Puget Sound, right? I mean, it was a now that Native Americans were no longer an existential threat. If they're not a threat, they can be quaint. Right. Quaint mm. and sort of commodified. But the Appaloosa then, uh, w- one of these descendants of, um, of one of Kellogg's Arabians and, and a bona fide Appaloosa was a stallion by the name of Red Eagle. Yeah. See, that's, that's uh-huh. totally a white guy's idea of a, <laughs> of a native name. Red Eagle. And Red Eagle became uh, like a foundational stallion of, of the Appaloosa breed. And it was then, uh, it, there were explorations to Europe to discover some of the spotted horses that had descended from the, the spotted horses that had fallen out of fashion after the, the 18th century, a couple of breeds then crossbred European breeds crossbred with Appaloosas, both to, uh, to sort of intensify the Appaloosa brand and also intensify the European breeds, uh, Famous, famously, the Danish breed called the Knobstroopers. Knobstroopers. The Knobstrooper, which is a which is a Danish spotted horse. That's very oh, so flamboyant. The and Danish Knobstrooper. And has a very strooped knob. And then back to Austria, the Noriker breed, which had been known as the Pinsgauer horse, uh, which was a uh, like an alpine an alpine and alpine draft horse, uh, after which was named the Pinsgauer four-wheel drive off-road army truck. Some of these are beautiful. They're almost Dalmatian-looking. They're incredible. And so the Appaloosa and and these heritage horses of Europe were kind of, you know, used together to create, you know, to intensify this spottedness. Now, some Appaloosa... Some Appaloosa horses are solid color. There's a lot of variation. I like the ones that are part solid and then suddenly yeah. they get crazy. The suddenly they're just a Dalmatian on, on their haunches or yeah, something. Yeah, like their head and, and shoulders will be brown, and then all of a sudden they're white and spotted. and Or the reverse. They're kind of bays on the back, and then suddenly it's like they're wearing war paint because they've got this, their head and neck. Are, I don't know parts of a horse. Perhaps they're fetlock. Yeah, no way they're, to know. They're they're they're, they're withers. withers. I said withers at one point. I was very proud of myself. What even is the withers? It's, it's, it's the, the side, sides, right? Yeah, the little narrow parts. What's that, a what's a fetlock? It's another part. It's a different part that's not the withers. It's not a haunch, and it's not a. It's the it's the area. It's like a dewlap. <laughs> Do no. horses have dewlaps? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, the gizzard. The the the, um, the Appaloosa Horse Club has kind of changed its tune a few different ways about what constitutes. Uh, an Appaloosa, they do not want pinto coloration. They don't want Appaloosas to be paint colored. They uh, at various times have accepted mm. um, solid colored Appaloosas. Other times they've excluded them. P- pinto is more big splotches like a dairy cow. Yeah, they don't want splotches. They okay. want and and the speckles. De- the description of the speckles. It's called the leopard complex, which is a a whole set of qualities. But this leopardness. It's really described as a as a leopard pattern. Small, small discrete spots. And there 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 are things there are spots that are called halo spots where the the hair will be a different color and then the skin underneath it will be also a circle but 
a different size so that when you see them in a certain light, the spot of, uh, oh. on their, on their coat will have a halo underneath of, of the skin. There's many, many beautiful I'm, I'm attributes. Looking, I'm looking at some Appaloosas where the weird haloing of their spots is so weird. It almost looks like they're being, um, like they're rusting or, um, you know, uh, slime molds are growing on them or something. <laughs> yeah. You can, there's a crazy variety. Yeah, they're really dynamite, and you know, I, I, I would imagine that that they would make a, like a really cool actual coat, like to wear mm. in the winter, or like a cool Cruella de Roderick. Yeah, that's me. You cannot wear Appaloosa fur. The one drag about the breed—I mean, I'm sure there are other drags. They used to have really um, one of their kind of less favored attributes was that they had kind of mangy tails and manes. They didn't have. They're not as lustrous. Yeah. They didn't have, I mean, their skin and their, and their coat were amazing, but they didn't have like big furry manes. But then they went to fantastic Sam's. So people started to breed them with horses that could give them some of that. And so modern Appaloosas have fluffier manes and tails. Cause who wants a horse with a mangy tail? Am I right? Having a bad mare day. But one of the drags is that they have a gene, the the Appaloosa breed, which is not a coloration designation. It's a, it's a breed. It's a genetic, their genetic expectations. By uh, the way, can you see these things chromosomally? Can you like do some mm-hmm. kind of blood test to tell what, what if your horse is Appaloosa enough? Now you can. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the requirements, you can crossbreed an Appaloosa and have it make it into the Appaloosa registry. But one of the parents has to already be in the Appaloosa registry. Uh, and one of the traits like that so they, many things. I know one of the traits that they, it's like daughters of the American revolution. <laughs> one of the traits that's a drag is that they are very susceptible to blindness and also night blindness. So Appaloosas will often have perfect vision during the day and then completely blind at night. Can't see in the dark at all. Have to just stand there susceptible to being horse tipped. You can tiptoe right up on them. I can't see you. No. Wait, you can't tip a horse, can you? I don't think you can even tip a cow. I think that's, that, and you know what? And that, that uh, the myth of cow tipping was an idea that was first introduced to me on the Palouse. We were out, uh, we were out running. We used to go down to the Palouse and, um, Take all our clothes off and run around naked. Oh sure, because classic Washington child. <laughs> we were we were on drugs, and it seemed like it was. I don't know if you've ever taken all your clothes off and run around in a field naked, but it's really fun. I have not. It, it's very freeing. It's very liberating. What if there's ticks? Uh, I don't think there are ticks. We weren't in the woods. We were just like in plowed plowed fields. When I like to run around naked with my bros, we always do it in the woods. Yeah, see, yeah, that's it's a real, different thing. Real room with a view vibe. On the plowed fields, you can run as fast as you can. And to run as fast as you can with no clothes on is so great. You already talked about this in the streaking show. Yeah, and you, I might have been on drugs. You have already extolled the virtue. But somebody flopping. somebody on that uh, adventure, it was the first time I'd heard of cow tipping because there were some cows out in the distance and they were like, we should go tip over those cows. I was like, what does that even mean? Oh, if cows are sleeping, you can tip them over. And I wasn't interested in that. It seemed mean. Let me just say that if even if you're going to tip livestock, something large, you should not do the blind ones. Don't start with the, with the animals with disabilities. They've got enough trouble. 
go go tip something else. Go go tip someone your own size. And that concludes the Appaloosa entry 059.ZC0603. That's ZC Zulu Charlie 0603. Certificate number 36454. In the omnibus. Uh as you have perhaps already heard, I mean, if you're listening to these in alphabetical order, this is probably one of the first shows. Oh, right. Early, early days. Although, will they have alphabets in the future? Uh, certainly not the Roman alphabet. Right. Uh, it'll be, it'll be like that alphabet in the movie where the aliens are octopuses. You've already listened to, um, an African in Greenland, Albanian bunkers, um, Boy, Albanian bunkers, that takes me back. Those were the days. They were so easy to find topics back then. (laughs) Well, we didn't accept viewer submissions. (laughs) so I just went down a rabbit hole yesterday, and I was like, you know what? This was not wasted time. This is going to be an omnibus next month. Uh, As you probably already know, we were available at Omnibus Project, respectively at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on social media, which was the great blight of our time. I thought uh, you were going to say the great leveler. Which was the great no, emancipator. <laughs> you could email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com or send us things to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I've noticed we're not getting as many people just sending us, like, grandpa's gas masks anymore. We we, don't get, that we don't get big crates full of things, but we have some lovely postcards today. We've heard before from the Center for Land Use Interpretation in beautiful Culver City, California, uh, they just want you to know there's a new uh, there's a new exhibition there uh, called Venting the Earth, looking at geothermal energy. I'm excited about I'm, this. I'm glad we could put the word out. Uh, it's near the In and Out on Venice. Mm. Uh, we also got from Banks a photo from a little art store. Sure, in it's not Banksy. Philadelphia. That, that could be worth a lot of money. He actually says, or he or she, they actually say pronounced Banks. Okay. It appears to be also spelled banks, but possibly with a C. Hard to say. And it's a picture of a it's a little uh, oh, it indie art of a mail truck. Of a mail truck. Thank you for um, sending us anything mail truck or Christian Science Reading Room shaped as you pass by it in the world. But we still do want your grandpa's gas masks too. We start sending us big crates of things again. Yeah, big crates of things are great. In fact, we were just marveling at a sword that we have here on the on the the table. When's uh, the last time somebody sent us an extremely problematic sword? Yeah, that was a very problematic sword that I was supposed to get rid of because it had such a, a inglorious history. Maybe but you should not out yourself as still owning the racist sword. Yeah, what can you do? We don't know the best way to purify a racist sword. I never throw anything away is what I do. Somebody suggested that we give it to a museum, and I was like, no museum wants it. There's so many of these and maybe only one museum of racist weaponry. I feel like every sword was a racist sword up until not very long ago. If you were using your sword, you were... Look, it's not enough to just be a sword. You have to be an anti-racist sword. So what are you going to do with that sword, John, to further the cause of anti-racism? Uh, let's go skewer some of your neighbors with well, uh, no, Let's I'm, Go Brandon signs. I'm going to keep it out uh I'm going to keep it out of circulation. I'm going to, ah. it's like carbon sequesterization, sequestration. <laughs> That's right. Carbon sequestration. I'm sequestering this sword. Or you could do offsets. I'm going to keep this one, but I'm going to smelt two new, uh, extremely anti-racist swords. And therefore on balance, you're doing great. 
most of the Omnibus listeners won't remember this sword because we probably talked about it on a on a um, addenda. And I think it's better that way. Was it addenda? Whatever it was, whoever sent us this sword who's now going, I can't believe you still have that sword. And all the other people who are like, what sword? If you want to really shock them, tell them how it's leaning up against your shelf with your daughter's books and toys on it. The thing is, she would never know. She's not interested in it. Because there are so many swords around here. <laughs> uh, another one of dad's swords. Yeah, it kind of is creating an unsafe environment. First crusade problems. You can support the show. There are many ways to support the show, but none more effective than going to patreon.com slash omnibusproject. You won't miss out on any weird uh, addenda in-jokes anymore mm. if you donated even the most modest of uh, Patreon tiers. Thanks to all who support the show. It would not be around right now if not for you. It's had, you. It's had enough growing pains over the years that... Um, Patreon has been its one successful model. Every time I turn on terrestrial radio, uh, somebody is like, you're listening to the hot sounds of the 70s. It's an iHeart music radio station or whatever. Could have been you. iHeart radio. And I'm like, hmm, yep. So was I one time. Good times. You can find your fellow futurelings online in all manner of places. I think there's a subreddit and a Facebook group. For sure. There's that Discord for your other shows. For sure. It's all it's all it's fun. It's a discourse. Oh, it's discourse? It's there discord? are discords, but there's also a discourse. Okay. Which you can access through my Patreon at johnroderick.com. Patreon.com slash johnroderick. Or slash Omnibus Project. <laughs> Do that one first. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We wish you many good and cheese and that you come see us often. We also hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Uh, and we hope that you do not take 90% of our of our ancestral territory from us. Unless and tr- tr- you're the descendants of the Nez Perce, in which case oh, we, we really have it coming. Yeah, you could send 90% of our territory to the Nez Perce in exchange for some spotted horses. Some spotted butted horses. We'll send you all that gold we stole. I don't know. Stole? I don't know. I didn't steal any gold. It's oh, not my fault. <laughs> I never had slaves. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.